We try to accelerate the global transition to sustainable investing by enabling institutional and individual investors to reflect the issues they are trying to solve in their portfolios. And that can include things like climate change, human rights, racial justice, deforestation, pollution. And we seek to do that right now in the US and then eventually globally. Welcome to the Entrepreneurs for Impact podcast. My name is Chris Wedding and I'm your host. As a former private equity investor, occasional monk, startup founder, Duke and UNC professor, and mastermind guide for our climate CEO peer groups, I launched this podcast to share inspiring stories of CEOs and investors tackling climate change. Honestly, just got a little tired of all the doom and gloom. Through these interviews, I hope we can all become better founders, investors, entrepreneurs, and human beings by digesting these guests' secrets to starting and scaling climate companies, creating careers of impact, building habits and routines for higher productivity and health, and growing through maybe life-changing books and podcasts that they recommend. All right, let's get started. Jay Lippman, co-founder and president at Ethic. Welcome to the podcast, buddy. Absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So <laughs> folks already know from your accent, the expectations are really high because, you know, if you have that accent, you got to be full of insight and, and wisdom, Jay. So are you, are you ready to live up to those expectations? <laughs> I actually rely on the the opposite being true and that the accent okay. buys me a lot more respect than I deserve. Okay. Uh, okay. It increases okay. my intelligence probably to a passing level. So let's nice. let's get cracking. Nice, nice. Not your first rodeo. I'm not sure what should be said about what used to be a Kentucky accent that sometimes comes out of my mouth. All right. So we we start a course with what what is the elevator pitch, uh, Jay, for ethic? It's a great question uh, and something that continues to evolve, you know, as the needs of, I think, some of the problems that we're trying to solve change. But ultimately, we try to accelerate the global transition to sustainable investing by enabling institutional and individual investors to reflect the issues they are trying to solve in their portfolios. And that can include things like climate change, human rights, racial justice, deforestation, pollution. And we seek to do that right now in the US and then eventually globally. Yep, cool. We're going to come back, of course, to dive deeper into ethic. But I, I just would remark that if folks go to your website, they're going to see in a very uh, visual way how you all personalize this amorphous concept of ESG. I'll just, I'll just plant that seed for now. We'll, we'll come back to it. We'll come back to it. All right. The second question we asked to get started is uh, tell us something you strongly believe in, which might be, I believe that dogs deserve treats during podcasts <laughs> as, I'm, as I'm watching your eyes. But aside from the, the pet friend, g give us a foundational belief, Jay, not your, not your own, not the strongest, just, just pick mm. one. Yeah, pick one. I mean, there's many that have served us very well, you know, at Ethic since we founded the business. But I think one of the ones that goes back to the early founding days that's helped us build relationships, you know, before we even really deserved to get the help that we got was always seek to add value in any given situation. And, you know, everyone has value to offer in some capacity. And that applies to everything that you're doing. And so, you know, with a lot of the work that you and I do around climate, 
I think a lot of people feel somewhat powerless to uh, help in this conversation, to be on the right side of the climate problem. But everyone does actually have a skill set or a value to add to it. And so in you know, business interactions, it's how can I help this individual on the other side of the room? But with regards to the climate conversation, it's you know, everyone has something they can offer to the fight. Uh, you know, if you're a graphic designer, you can help tell simpler stories about how people can increase their sustainability at home or at work. Right. If you're a technologist, you can uh, implement technologies that aren't currently being used to accelerate the transition to clean energy. Right. There's so many different ways to add value either to the things you want to see change in the world, whether that's climate issues or within business itself, you know, to, to help those that you're interacting with. That's always been kind of a core belief of ours, uh, you know, personally and, and at Epic generally. Yeah, I like that. It, it, it's along the lines of, hey, look, you know, climate, climate tech, you know, however you however you kind of bucket this, it's not about a single sector, right? It's across probably every sector. It also reminds me of, um, you know, being at a whatever proverbial cocktail party or conference or whatever else. And, you know, if, if we're the ones doing all the talking, well, there's no way to learn from others, right? Right. What, what they could teach us, we just we just don't know yet. I think that feels similar to what you're saying. Part of it's everyone bring their full selves to solve climate change. The other is maybe a little humility, right? To know that our story, our message, our product, our service is not the only solution. Lots of solutions out there to bring into the fold, huh? Well, I think, you know, everyone has a superpower. You know, everyone actually does have this unique lever to pull. Uh, and if, if, if you're a comedian, right, breaking down barriers through humor to talk about climate change, this is one of the things I've been, you know, seeing more recently is people in the creative arts realizing they can use that skill set to tell more stories to get people to connect with this topic that can seem so serious right no matter what it is that someone has a skill set in i think that it can be applied to moving the needle on this issue and other issues and so always seeking to understand how you can uniquely add value because everyone does have something unique to give whether you're you know good at business good at sales good at marketing good at design good at comedy good at humor like that can all be used and obviously you know you and i are lucky enough to get to work you know full time on climate and trying to address it but more and more, I'm seeing people use these really unique skill sets to be part of the solution. And that's kind of inspiring me to see how we can hopefully help more people to uh, realize those skills and to be mm. part of the solutions themselves. For sure. Yeah. Another seed I'll plant here on the line along the lines of humor. If folks haven't been on, on LinkedIn to see your all's video starring you and your co-founders making things like ESG more uh, uh, I was going to say palatable, but understandable, relatable, uh, with humor to break some of those barriers down. I'll encourage folks to go uh, to go check those out. Let's uh, let's go to our third kind of intro question here, which is um, it's about you know your growth, our growth. We're all hopefully uh, growing. Can you tell us a story? M maybe it's along the lines of ethic, you know, a mistake that was made, or prior ventures, prior work experience, perhaps mistakes made, lessons learned, and how that kind of influences the success you all are seeing at Ethic? Yeah, honestly, this is a really good question and does make you think, you know, we've been at this for about seven years now. I think, you know, we obviously came into this quite idealistic and thinking, you know, we're going to try and save the world. We're going to try and use our skill sets for good. And, and all of us kind of have these unique mixed backgrounds coming from institutional finance, but also kind of impact philanthropy, activism, these kinds of things. And the reality, sadly, but also importantly, is that we can't rely on altruism and idealism to solve the problems at the scale we need to solve them. 
because the reality is everyone has a job, everyone has a boss, everyone has to make the numbers work. And if we rely on everyone being incredibly passionate and incredibly excited and incredibly uh, enthused by the problem solving for the sake of solving the problem, we're probably not going to see as much, imp as much impact as if we come to the table with a decision maker or a CEO or a procurement specialist or whoever it is, and we help them to connect the impact with what incentivizes them, right? Is it going to drive business results for them? Is it going to help them from a messaging perspective? Is it going to make their employees or their customers more engaged with them, right? And so for us at Ethic, we were obviously incredibly passionate early on about driving the acceleration towards sustainable investing. But as soon as we started communicating to the gatekeepers of who actually decided what kind of capital gets invested, as soon as we started communicating that in a language of, look, let us worry about the impact. We're going to give you something that serves you. We're going to give you a technology that helps delight your clients because you're going to help them have impact. And we're going to communicate the value to you and your teams in the way it's going to help you solve business problems. And so that's what's allowed us to, you know, we have roughly $2 billion in assets under management um, in sustainable strategies that, you know, cover issues ranging from climate change, to deforestation, to gender equity and racial justice. And we've been able to do that by speaking the language of value it's going to add to the individual who makes the decisions on the other side of the table. Because we could go in talking about saving the world. At the end of the day, all the decisions that need to be made need to be made for a business reason as well. And we solve these things by connecting the two. And so the mistakes very early on were going in very hot and saying like, you know, why wouldn't you do this? This is the right thing to do. And stepping back and saying, it may be the right thing to do. And that person may be very energized, but they're going to have their hands tied if they go to their boss saying that is the reason. Whereas if we give this to them in a language that drives business results while also having an impact, we're going to we're going to make everyone a winner here and that is a lot more powerful one thing i'll i'll mention is you use the word delight right your all's solution to delight i think your customers customers but anyway i don't think that's that's a fun you know takeaway from our conversation is you know how can you not just create happy customers but like how can they how can you delight the customers that's there's a big difference i think in those verbs another thing you mentioned was you guys have been at this for seven years I think it's pretty easy for onlookers to say, oh my gosh, well, what a cool, not quite overnight success, but overnight success, right? These guys have got $2 billion of assets under management. You know, I think something like $100 million, you know, raised, huge impacts, great press, all the rest. But what folks don't realize is, right, that's seven years of planting, watering seeds and, and long hours and sleeping at the office and whatever the case may be, right? We all know entrepreneur, entrepreneurship is, is super easy. The other around, you know, motivations and, and using the right language. I think about when I was somehow led in the door to work in private equity years ago during my PhD program. Man, I was such an idiot, so naive about motivations and language. Slowly learned after banging my head against the wall, you know, for, for a number of years. Or I think about in the solar world, let's say, so many, you know, not mission-oriented folks have come, say, from, I don't know, real estate development, Right. They know how to, how to develop real assets and they've been successful building low cost, right? High performing solar project. And it's easy to think, well, they're not like me. They're not in this just, or, you know, for the mission and for the profit. They're in it a lot for the profit, but it's like, well, we need all sorts of motivations to get this shit built at scale and at the right, at the right cost. Anyway, mm -hmm. lots of that resonates uh, for sure. 
Let's go back into the weeds of ethic, right? So you all are making ESG investing easy for, I think, high net worth for, for, for institutions. Tell us more about what, what you allow your customers to do to translate this, you know, pretty heady term that shows up in press releases and I don't know, my courses at Duke. <laughs> anyway, how, do you, how does your tech make it easier to do the right thing? You know, mission alignment with their capital, with their retirement funds, but also, right, earning market rate returns. Well, I think, you know, one of the things I'm not sure if you've seen uh, some of the more recent news about ESG being in the headlines, whether it's Elon Musk, you know, calling it a scam or The Economist just came out with a long thing about uh, ESG being deeply flawed and need to change. That is actually somewhat valid. Right. The idea that there are these ubiquitously recognized sustainable, universally recognized sustainable businesses, right? We don't think that's possible, right? There is no perfect business that is 100% sustainable. Every business has a trade off, right? And I think one of the things that we focused on is helping investors to define what sustainability means to them. Because if we, as an investment industry, come to investors and say, hey, Here's a selection of businesses that we think are aligned with your values. That's a one-size-fits-all approach, which is inevitably going to lead to the pushback that we're seeing right now, which is a lot of investors coming out and saying, well, if I think that sustainability is purely climate-oriented, why is this oil company in this portfolio? Oh, well, it may have good ratings on the S and the G in the S and G, but obviously very poor on the E. You know, and why is a company like Tesla not in my portfolio when obviously I think that it is a company that this is as an investor, that they think it is a company that's accelerating the energy transition. And so what we have focused on is doing the opposite of what you typically recognize ESG to be doing in that we do not push a narrative about what E, S, and G means. We don't push a narrative. Um, <laughs> hey, Jay, sorry, this, we don't need to edit this part out. You know, we, we, some of us have pets or kids. They make, they play with plastic toys. He's <laughs> literally using a squeaky toy. Okay. So going back to uh, where we were, which is why at Ethic, you know, we focus on giving investors the ability to define what sustainability means to them. And that's what our technology, I believe has done so differently is put the onus on the investor to understand and define what issues matter to them. It can be purely climate-oriented. It can be purely emissions-oriented, or it can be focused on biodiversity, deforestation, air and water pollution, or it can be more general, looking at the effects of businesses on human rights. It can be looking at governance factors. But by putting the investor in the driver's seat, they become more engaged with that definition, but they also actually feel like this is something that represents them versus something that's one size fits all and they're not really participating in. And so we have much more of a focus on personalization. And so the technology that we build is for the financial intermediary, which could be a wealth advisor, financial advisor, institutional consultant. It gives them the ability to help their investors define the issues that matter to them. And that has been a big differentiator for us, but also has taught us how to storytell around these issues, right? Some of these topics are so nebulous and so complex. What is net zero, right? What is a carbon emission versus a methane emission versus GHG emission, right? What is CO2E, right? We take a lot of pride in simplifying these topics that can be really nebulous or somewhat sensitive or somewhat political for an advisor and enabling them to just tell the story based on the way that the uh, investor or the uh, client is going to engage with it. And that has been a really powerful thing about you know, what we've done differently and hopefully succeeded in is focusing on storytelling, making these topics approachable and not 
daunting. And that's enabled us to, we believe, you know, get more people involved in the conversation and to feel like they are actually participating versus just being told what they should believe. Yeah, look, not having a one size fits all is almost always a good thing, right? Customizing, we are, we, are, we slash businesses slash buyers are, are, are all unique snowflakes, right? Yeah. Um, I think it's interesting that you all uh, are selling to the intermediaries, you know, the wealth managers, the investment consultants. Was that always your all's approach or did you learn that, that was the way to get to market at scale? Kind of as you evolved. It's honestly been an evolution in the earliest days we thought we'll do everything, right? We're going to have something that goes straight to consumers as well as something that's institutional. But that was very quickly, that very quickly evolved into us realizing, look, we have an expertise and a speciality in being institutionally centric. That's what our backgrounds are in. That's, you know, the technology and the investments we previously built were institutionally focused. And so we realized like that's our strength. We're going to focus on that. And that's what's enabled us, I think, to uh, succeed in the way that we have is that we've been very focused on one very specific subset of investors early on. And reality is in an industry like investment management, the vast majority of assets are held behind institutional consultants, investment managers, fund managers, wealth managers, and we seek to move the lever of the most capital. And so that's what's led us to focus on that and, and really build I wouldn't say build a niche, but you know, continue to build our strength in understanding how to empower that intermediary and help them tell the story, right? Because as you know, this topic is just really complex and confusing. And I spend all my time trying to understand it. And I'm still Googling how to understand certain topics all the time, even, even today. And we seek to simplify those topics for any individual that has to sit in the room and get asked that question for by a client so that they feel confident and comfortable enough to have the conversation, which then leads to way more assets flowing, right? So that comfort, comfort and that confidence that we can give that individual in the room, the investment manager, the, you know, uh, the wealth manager, the financial advisor, that ultimately leads to a lot more impact because then then able to tell the story and get more people invested in impact solutions. Yeah, I think it's a good illustration or framing for how, how other entrepreneurs or investors should think about, look, how do we how do we most quickly get scale for our solution? Clearly, it's the question. Often it is not, let's do everything, right? Mm. It is, let's maybe let's test in the early months or years, kind of which channel, which customer this resonates the most, and then kind of double down on that. And often these kind of, you know, picking a fork in the road is not about a sacrifice. It's about being very good at telling the right story to one kind of buyer. It also makes me think about th- this idea of, um, I think it was career advice from Kathy Wood of ARC, where she's like, hey, find ways to make your boss look smart, right? And guess what? They will love you. They will yeah. see your genius and you will get kind of promoted to the next level. Anyway, make your customers look very smart so they can achieve their KPIs, ROIs, whatever the case may be. Okay, okay. And, and that, that kind of goes back to uh, this idea of adding value, right? Communicating this in terms of like, getting more people to invest sustainably, we recognized early on was the individuals that were making the decisions about where assets were flowing were the people that worked with clients. And it wasn't about focusing on the impact elements because those are ultimately individuals that just have a job. They have to get their, you know, they have to work with clients, they have to keep them happy, they have to maintain that trust. And then feeling like they're doing something for the wrong reason, no matter how altruistic it is, is not going to go well for them. 
right? So focusing on how this is going to delight that client. It's going to build more trust. It's going to get them more engaged in the conversation because you're going to build a relationship around the values you share and the fact that you both love nature and you both want to protect animals and you both love scuba diving and therefore you want to protect oceans. You know, that is what we focus on the whole time. And that has allowed us to build our better relationships with our clients and help them build better relationships with their clients. And so, yeah, yeah that's very much been a, a focus for us. Yeah. Can, can we go back to how complex ESG is mm. or sustainable investing is? Yeah. And so on one hand, you're simplifying with storytelling, but you're also allowing your customers to pick, right? To pick which flavor within ESG resonates with them. And I think about like, you know, m- my path in the world of startups or investing in climate, clean, clean tech, whatever we call it. And I always think, oh, well, I would make certain decisions as like, you know, whatever, an energy geek. But most mainstream folks wouldn't spend the mental effort to figure it out. So that they need a simple packaged solution, not because they're simple, but because their passions are elsewhere. They're busy with, with whatever else the case may be. How do you all make it personal yet simple? Does that, does that make sense? If you think about it like this is going to be overly reductive, my team may not enjoy if I use this analogy. But if you look at a place like Sweetgreen, right, where you can walk into Sweetgreen and there is a selection of salads you can buy where they're going to make it for you, you know, you have the ability to change one or two different options or the ability to customize everything that you want in that salad. Right. We think investing should have the same level of flexibility in that a lot of people go in and they're like, that's my salad I get every day. It's the one they recommend. It's a great salad. It's got all the great ingredients that I know. I know I can watch them putting it together and that's great. Right. We do that as well, where we have uh, ethic market themes. We have these strategies that we believe address the primary issues. And if an investor comes in, as they very often do, Right, we can give them something that has been vetted and researched by our team to address something like climate or the environmental issues. We can also do that with our partners. So, if we're working with a wealth manager in New York, we can develop a custom strategy or a salad that is uniquely theirs. Right, it's their strategy they can offer to their clients. We can then have someone go completely custom. But the fact that we give that scale of solutions means that everyone is kind of comfortable because anyone coming in knows they're ultimately going to get something that they actually like mm-hmm. um, because it really can reflect the level that the, the client wants. And you know, very often people don't want to go completely custom. Very often they come in and say, look, I care about climate change. I care about animal rights. I care about nature. I would like something that reflects that, but I don't want to go through everything you know, in a line item with a tooth comb. And so we can kind of meet them where they are, which is so important in this conversation because yep. everyone is coming to this conversation from a different point yep. uh, and a different level of expertise. And some people have watched documentaries, some people have read books, some people have got PhDs like yourself, some people you know, teach like yourself. And we seek to be able to meet people where they are because we feel that that's ultimately going to you know, uh, be a more powerful conversation as well. And so, and the only thing I would add to that is just the way that we do it, right? Because what we ultimately build for investors are these direct indexed portfolios. So what you would consider an index strategy, like an ETF or sometimes a mutual fund that gives you a, a basket of uh, companies that tracks an underlying benchmark Right. We create custom versions of that using individual companies to give you what seeks to be the same performance or financial attributes or exposures in as sustainable a way as possible. And so that mechanism is what allows us to give that person uh, that personalization. 
because without you know the ability to create these separate managed accounts of uh, single companies, we wouldn't be able to give you the set. We'd have to give you everyone the same salad, which would suck, right? Because everyone wants a different salad, and you know, and I I, I go to Sweet Green a lot because I think it's a great company. I, I think it's a great salad, but I always get a different salad every single time I go. So yeah, hopefully that helps answer that question. Well, it does. Uh, I mean, I, I hear a spectrum. I hear options within options from simple to almost like pre-made to highly customized, which is great. I've also never heard of Sweet Green, but clearly I need to go. I need to go there. <laughs> oh, well, I'm probably, I'm naively speaking from a very New York centric nah, yeah. uh, example. Us country yeah. folks down here, you know, we don't know what that, how to spell that even, I tell you. <laughs> That's a fair, I should have used a more ubiquitous example. No, it's um, good. It's good. You're storytelling, Jay. It's great. It's great. So let's switch in our last kind of, you know, five or 10 minutes. Let's switch a little bit from ethic to Jay, right? Mm. So obviously we get to have fun, you know, working together since you're part of this great, you know, climate mastermind peer group that we run here. But I want to share some of that, right? With, with other folks. So if you, Jay, if you had a, a chance to talk to your younger self, what are, I don't know, one or two tips of advice, right? You, you give the younger Jay to be, pick your adjective, right? More effective, happier, uh, et cetera. I'm very bad at a lot of things, as you are probably aware of, having <laughs> had to work with me in some capacity. I am incredibly, uh, I, I would say I am uh, below par on a, a significant number of things. And I think in your early stages of your career, especially because I, I went out of college straight into a financial institution, you know, a large organization, Deutsche Bank. And in those environments, you are, you know, it benefits you to conform in a lot of ways in that, you know, there's specific things they want you to be good at to succeed at that early stage of your career. And a lot of those attributes are very valuable attributes, no matter what stage of career you're in. What I realized was that I was not hired for my given skill set in those things, my given ability to perform those things. But when I arrived, because I was, I was hired because I just did well in interviews, I built relationships, I got to know people. I was very passionate about finance and investing when I, uh, you know, from an early age, I'm invested, I've been investing in trading since I was young. But then when I went into the organization, I realized that I spent a lot of time focusing on strengthening my weaknesses. And I spent a lot of time focusing on trying to sure up the things that were really, really difficult for me. And so my dog has found the squeaky toy. Um, so forgive me for the, the squeaky it's in the background. It's all good. But ultimately, if you spend all your time trying to strengthen your weaknesses, you will ultimately weaken your strengths because those that energy that goes into trying to sure up those things that don't necessarily come naturally, they do distract you from the things that you do naturally excel at. And for me, I spent a lot of time trying to show up those things and not really pushing into the things that did come more naturally to me. And at Ethic, I've been very fortunate to be given the space to do the things that do come more naturally to me, which is connecting with people like yourself, having conversations, building relationships, learning about these topics, talking about these topics and getting people to understand the need for them. And if I had continued to spend all that energy trying to get the rest of my skill set up to par then the things that I really enjoy doing and the things that I feel like I'm relatively good at, I never would have had the energy to actually employ. And so that has been the biggest realization for me. And I think continues to be the biggest realization because I always wonder, should I spend more time focusing on this, this, and this? It's like, well, no. 
because it's really important to use the things that you can uniquely do, uh, or at least the things that you feel come most naturally to you, because then you're going to continue to want to do them because they don't feel like they're a heavy lift. Yeah, I love that. Uh, I can resonate uh, a lot with that as well. Some of the writing from uh, from Tim Ferriss comes to mind where I think the way he put it was, if you're trying to strengthen your weaknesses, you're kind of playing the game of life with addition, if you will. But if you focus on doubling down on your strengths, you're playing life um, in terms of multiplication. And it's like, mm-hmm. you know, which, which math function do you prefer, right? <laughs> I'm pretty sure the multiplication leads to bigger impacts, however you define that. But you're right. We live in a we live in a culture where it's it's the Rudy movie, right? But it, look, yeah, sure, we can all improve our weaknesses some, but we shouldn't try to make those as strong as our our strengths. I mean, for the, for those listening, the books like Strengths Finder or Stand Out, where you get these great twenty minute tests, you know, plus a book to figure out to be reminded, let's say, of some of the, some of these strengths was very validating for me you know, when I first took those and I, I just recommend them like crazy. How about, uh, what are some habits, routines, Jay, that keep you healthy, focused, and sane? I think this is probably the same thing you're going to get told from a lot of people. Uh, but I was lucky when we found the business to start my mindfulness practice early on. And so I was in my early 20s, mid 20s, maybe when I started to regularly take that time out just to give myself some mindfulness and time away from the day. And it gave me a level of perspective, perspective, but also separation from my own emotions that, you know, the early stages of building a business are essentially in our experience, at least an exercise in, you know, being told no many, many times. And thankfully due to mindfulness, at least I never internalized that those no's as mm. something that we were doing wrong. It was always, oh, well, that, you know, that investor may not have had a good day. That investor may not have got enough sleep. You know, not taking those things personally and always recognizing that we were on the right path. Being informed by directional challenges and something structurally wasn't right. But I do think it was meditation that allowed us or allowed me to just maintain the path when things got really tough. And if we had a lot of investor meetings before we got venture investing. And, you know, the reality is, thankfully, the market has turned and sustainability and climate and these themes are really rich and supported in investing, especially in venture investing now, in a way that they weren't as developed in 2016, 2017, when we were raising those early early funds. And so, you know, thankfully, investors participating in this market aren't going to encounter the level of skepticism that we saw, I hope. But those skills that I developed through mindfulness allowed me to have the kind of resilience and the separation from the environment to allow us to really kind of keep the faith and keep pushing forward. Well, clearly, I, I agree with with that practice. For me, now that it's summer, there's a little more time to have, you know, a, a stronger mindfulness practice. When it comes to all the no's, thinking about a conversation I had recently with one of your peers, another CEO member of our peer group, and they said, look, we just got a term sheet close to $100 million, but it was the what, whatever, 111th vester, you know, who said yes after a lot of no's and just well, often quick no's or even worse, very, very slow no's. Yeah. So yeah, that, that separation is is critical. Maybe in our last minute here, Jay, any, any books, I don't know, podcasts, resources, tools you recommend folks pick up? 
you know, there's actually a new book that I've been reading and, and reading is a generous term to say it, but I'm looking at now, it's called Things You Can Do. And it's a very, especially if you have children that are, you know, old enough to read, um, it's a beautifully designed book to help tell the story of things we can do in our own lives around reducing our own climate impact. And it's, it's just, for me, so much climate literature has been so dry and so depressing for so mm. long that for someone to come uh, out with something highly design-centric, beautiful, and really capture the storytelling necessity that we need in order to get people behind this has been a really powerful book. So uh, things you can do. And then all the Paul Hawken books, right? Drawdown, Regeneration. I just, I have 10 copies uh, <laughs> at my home. I have 10 copies at the office. Uh, because I tried to give it to everyone. It's my Bible. Mm. And I think it's just the most important literature of the last, you know, the last decade. Um, and so, yeah, those are, those are always my books. And people at the office try to get me to shut up about uh, drawdown <laughs> and regeneration, but I, I refuse. I refuse. Well, you know, I, I see a repeating theme in both those books, which is, you know, optimism, right? Yep. Solutions focused. And again, couldn't agree more. The, the, the title to my newsletter this morning was something along the lines of doom and gloom are not the way to mainstream climate solutions, right? That was how yeah. I learned this stuff was environmental science degree many, many years ago. But boy, I was a I was a total buzzkill at parties, you know. <laughs> Do you know where that hamburger came from? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Uh, it's got to yeah. be about solutions. Yeah. Well, that's why, honestly, I do think, and there's definitely people that are going to have different opinions about this. I think one of the most important pieces of content that I've consumed in the last decade is the documentary Game Changers. I'm not sure if you've seen it, but it's a documentary on veganism. But, you know, there's been a million documentaries on veganism that talk about why there's a moral imperative not to eat meat. And for a long time, I watched those and I ate meat and I watched those documentaries. I feel bad, but I'm still going to eat meat. And then uh, I did end up cutting out meat five, seven years ago or something, but it was Game Changers that I watched and it focused on, look, the moral imperative is what it is. The best athletes in the world oh, yes. have gone vegan. Yeah, yes, they focused yes, I've on, seen that. It's the same as the Tesla argument, right? Tesla didn't come <laughs> out and get everyone to buy an electric car because they built an electric car. They built the sexiest, fastest, most efficient, best car, fastest car, broke all the records, drag racing against Lamborghinis, destroying them. If you want the best car, you buy a Tesla. If you want you know, the healthiest diet, veganism might be right for you. And that argument, I think, is crucial to climate. It's like, yes, there's reasons to do it because it's the right thing. But with a heat pump, heat pump's going to save you money. Why would you want to spend more money? Right? So go get a heat pump. Mm. And it's just, I love the the notion that we can get people to align their own self-interest with the right thing. And that, I think, is how we have the biggest impact. And that's where I get excited because that's what we try to figure out at Ethic is like, how do we drive the most impact by getting people to do what they want to do right? and not having to change behavior too much. Well, excellent. I'll, I'll just give a quick shout out to a fellow mastermind member in our peer group, Lauren Sauls at Sealed, who makes this easy for homeowners to get heat pumps and I also just note that my new heat pump is being fixed right now. And so I'm, I'm realizing the benefits of what you're describing as well. Hey, Jay, fun to share our conversation with, with, with others. I think ethic, what, what ethic is doing is really inspiring. Great to see the traction. We're rooting for your all success, man. Thank you, Chris, man. I appreciate being on. And yeah, I look forward to hearing the finished product. You're here.
Thank you so much for listening. Seriously, the world needs you, and I know your time is super valuable. If you want more content like this, please subscribe to our weekly newsletter at entrepreneursforimpact.com. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I read every single one, I promise. These reviews are the number one way to draw more attention to the world-changing climate CEOs and investors that I'm lucky enough to be interviewing on the show. And each month, I pick one listener review for a one-on-one brainstorming call with me. Who knows what can come of those? Finally, if you're a growth stage climate CEO looking for a confidential peer group to share best practices, expand your network and scale your business, then please apply to join our climate mastermind programs and entrepreneurs for impact where our current amazing members have created over $4 billion in company value to mitigate climate change. Until next time, keep on fighting those good fights.